Full Scope, Human Longevity and Performance Podcast. We want you to become the most exceptional, high-performing version of yourself. And to facilitate this, we are giving away the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook absolutely free. This is a tremendous resource that will tell you the lifestyle behaviors and mindset that will lead to the best outcomes and longevity. To get this, go to our website, wondermedicine.com or fullscope.org, put in your email, and we will send you this amazing resource, the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook. Welcome, everyone, to the third and final installment of the human destruction of Earth and its effects on our health. We've been talking about the planetary boundaries. These boundaries are meant to quantify safe operating spaces for us to use and utilize the planet. After we push beyond those safe boundaries, we risk destabilizing our planet. Thank you to Earth scientists for bringing us these measurements. So far we've talked about things like climate change or the warming of our planet. Novel chemical entities that are accumulating in our environment and our bodies. The disruption of our nutrient cycles, mostly from overuse of agricultural fertilizers getting into our water sources and causing havoc. Talked about our usage of, usage of fresh water. Our usage of land, and in particular deforestation, or the loss of 40% of the forests on our planet. We've talked about the collapse of biodiversity. All around us, wildlife is in decline, and we are causing the sixth mass extinction of life on Earth. There's still three more to talk about, and these include ocean acidification, atmospheric aerosols, and stratospheric ozone depletion. After this, we're going to take a more targeted look at how these planetary boundaries and how crossing them in particular can and will and already is affecting the health of real people on our planet today and what the potential is in the future. So saddle up for this episode of Full Scope. All right, let's get right into ocean acidification. Anyone who's familiar with the concepts of respiratory acidosis and alkalosis will be familiar with the concept that CO2 or carbon dioxide can dissolve in water, or blood for that matter. And when it does, it can make the liquid more acidic. It basically combines with water to form carbonic acid. And considering the fact that the parts per million in our atmosphere have increased dramatically in the last 50 years from 280 parts per million to 420 parts per million, it should be no surprise to most that a lot of this CO2 is getting dissolved in our ocean. And it's causing the ocean to acidify. In fact, today, our ocean is now 26% more acidic than it was 
50 years ago. And this can cause big problems. A lot of the organisms in our ocean rely on the production of aragonite, which is a type of calcium carbonate to make their shells and parts of their body. These include things like mollusks, clams, corals. All of these organisms are at tremendous risk because as the ocean acidifies, it becomes more difficult for them to produce these calcium carbonate substances. One noteworthy thing that's happening uh, a lot because the warming of seas and oceans, but also probably being affected by the acidity, is the bleaching of tremendous amounts of coral. And in fact, as much as 50% of the Great Barrier Reef in the eastern coast of Australia has already been bleached and destroyed and is dead. Coral reefs are dying around the world, and it is a big problem, again, not just because they're beautiful to go dive and check out, but because these coral reefs often serve as nurseries for a tremendous amount of the fish species that live in the ocean. This is where the baby fish go to grow up before they head out into the open ocean. And so the collapse of coral reefs will likely lead to the continued collapse of many fish stocks. And sadly, when we combine this with the overfishing that everybody knows is going on, including the fishermen, we've got a dismal future in store for our ocean. Ocean acidification is a bad deal, and it's a, a direct side effect of the increased carbon dioxide in our atmosphere, which of course causes global warming. All of these systems, these earth systems that we're talking about, are connected. And it's important to understand that. Do not underestimate the power of the petrochemical companies. Alright, next I want to talk about aerosols. Aerosols are particles that are less than 100 micrometers in length. They can come from natural sources, things like volcano emissions, wind uh, blowing up dust and dirt, and even plants when they spit out pollen produce particulates. However, human industrial processes also spit out a lot of particulates. Things like fossil fuel combustion and the burning of coal spew out particles into our atmosphere, which we then breathe, and they affect our health. In fact, these particulates that humans create are associated with, are associated with an estimated 7.2 million deaths per year from things like asthma, COPD, and other respiratory issues. These particles come in different sizes. And if you listen to the episode on asbestos and the pneumoconiosis, you probably remember a little bit about this type of stuff. But the particle size matters. And particles between basically 0.5 and 5 micrometers are the perfect size to deposit deep in the bronchioles. And this can cause a lot of problems because they get stuck, they can't get out, 
They cause genetic damage and other damage and can lead to bad things like COPD and cancer. Larger particles that are greater than 5 micrometers tend to deposit higher up in the lungs and because of the lungs uh, ciliary system can often get uh, removed and then either swallowed or spit out. And then smaller particles, things less than 0.5 micrometers, can often get breathed in and then they're too small to actually stick anywhere so they get breathed back out. But all of these are not hard and fast rules. They're just general examples of what particle sizes tend to be the most dangerous. Now, the International Agency for Research on Cancer classifies these aerosols as group 1 carcinogens, which basically is the most uh, direct direct uh, evidence showing that they cause cancer. They can lead to permanent DNA mutations, as well as other respiratory diseases, uh, heart attacks, and death. There's no safe level for these particulates, um, and of course they're everywhere. And for every increase in 10 micrograms of particles per square meter of air, the risk of lung cancer goes up by 22%. This is what we're all breathing, people, and this is what our children are breathing. Nine out of 10 people are breathing unhealthy air in the world today. By some estimates, these particles are taking, on average, three years off of each of our lifespans. Gosh, it's just... just heartbreaking. These aerosols actually can block the sun's rays and for that reason can cool areas down. They make it so in cities with a lot of air pollution we don't feel the full effects of climate change and global warming because the aerosols tend to block it. This uh, (laughs) doesn't make it worth it that's for sure but our cities would be even hotter right now if we didn't have these particulates in the air. The third and final planetary boundary we're going to talk about is stratospheric ozone depletion. Now, remember, the atmosphere of Earth has five main layers. The troposphere, the stratosphere, the mesosphere, the thermosphere, and the exosphere. The troposphere is closest to Earth and goes from about 0 to 12 kilometers, or 7 miles, above the surface of the Earth. The next layer is the stratosphere, and that goes from about 12 to 50 kilometers above Earth, or 7 to 31 miles. And this is where the ozone layer lives. Ozone is essentially three molecules of oxygen bonded together, and it's very important for the safety of humans and other life on planet Earth. Essentially, kind of the bottom layer of the the stratosphere contains the highest concentrations of ozone in our atmosphere, about 10 parts per million. Now, this obviously isn't very much, but it's enough to absorb a lot of the sun's harmful ultraviolet radiation. This is extremely important, again, to protect life from being exposed to harmful radiation. Now, in the 1980s, we started using a lot of aerosols that contain chemicals called chlorofluorocarbons. These molecules began interacting with the ozone layer and destroying it. And eventually, we found out that there was a large hole. 
or at least a large depletion of ozone in the area around Antarctica. And this started scaring us because these chemicals, namely chlorofluorocarbons and bromofluorocarbons, were stable enough to float all the way up into the stratosphere and destroy large amounts of ozone. The good news is, is that after this was discovered, there was a pretty big effort to stop the use of these chemicals, and because of, of the bans on this, the ozone layer has begin, has began to be restored. And that's really awesome, because for most of these things, we've uh, just continued the destruction, as if uh, the destruction wasn't happening at all. Alright, and those are the nine planetary boundaries. Those are things that Earth scientists have attempted to quantify so that we know the level at which we cannot cross without risking the potential of irreversible damage to our planet. And these irreversible changes could potentially lead to a planet that could not support civilization as we know it. If we talk about all the public health measures that have ever happened, they just don't even look like they even matter compared to a planet that's destabilized and can't support our civilization. So this is important. It's perhaps the most important thing we've ever dealt with. It's the biggest challenge we've ever faced, and we're going to have to act and improve and do better if we don't want to cross these boundaries, because quite frankly, for several of them we already have, and for the others we're moving in the wrong direction for most all variables. I want to go over some of the things that we can do to change this process of destruction. As a whole, as a whole society, a whole world, we need to come together and stop emitting greenhouse gases. Stop disrupting the composition of our atmosphere. This should be easy to understand, and most people should buy into this, that if we disrupt the, the air that we breathe, that's going to be a big deal and a bad deal. And so it's time to stop burning fossil fuel. We need to cut emissions and you know by a lot and quickly. And I realize this can't happen overnight because society would grind to a halt and you can't just do that. That would cause a number of, of deaths and other problems too. But we need to systematically cut our emissions and we need to set goals and we need to meet those goals. And so far the goals that we've set are probably not aggressive enough. The climate scientists uh, that are looking into this the, the most heavily are saying that we should probably be trying to, to cut emissions by half every decade. That's a lot, but I think if we if put our heads to it, we could do it. The next thing that we need to do is stop producing chemicals that accumulate in the environment and in our bodies and may be harmful to human health. We don't need to prove that chemicals are harmful to human health. We need to prove that they aren't harmful to human health before we start using them in mass quantities where they're getting into the environment and our bodies. We need to start only producing items that we know how to either get rid of entirely, like, say, compost them and then use them as soil, or reuse entirely. We can't keep using things like non-reusable plastics that just form huge floating rafts in the ocean. <laughs> I mean, this is just crazy. We, If we don't know how to get rid of something, we need to not manufacture it. There's just too many people in the world, and it's too crowded to have all this junk. 
we need to start creating circular economies where we completely reuse the, the materials that we use to manufacture. And as stated in a few earlier episodes, I mean, this is what has to happen for us to have civilizations in space, and it's what has to happen for us to survive healthily on Earth with, with the growing population. And then finally, as a whole, we need to stop converting wild lands to agricultural lands. We have taken enough of the Earth's surface to date in 2021, and we cannot keep cutting down forests to expand that range. In fact, I would say that we need to start slowly taking back some of the agricultural lands and giving them back to the wild. Because the wild is in tremendous decline, and it is sad. All right, let's talk about some of the things that everybody, every single one of us can do personally to help the problem. The first thing and most important thing is to eat a healthy diet that's mostly plants. Like we talked about, plants need a lot less water and a, not, a lot less land to produce than meat. And for that reason, it's if we're trying to get more wild lands back and, and less used by agriculture, and if we're trying to preserve fresh water, we really can't have a world civilization that has a meat-centric diet like America. I'm not saying we can't eat any meat, and and I'm not saying that we... We should go to a point where we don't eat any meat. What I'm saying is that we don't need a steak with every meal. It's it's gone too far. And then along with that, processed foods. I mean, these are the awful foods that are making us all terribly unhealthy. They're all they're all very bad for our health, but they're also bad for the environment. We we make these gigantic monocrops of wheat and soy and corn, and we spray chemicals all over them, and then we you know, bring them to a laboratory and mix them with a bunch of salt and sugar and make these boxed and bagged foods that are harmful to our health, to the environment in every way. So we need to stop eating those and using those. The next thing you can do is buy local organic food. I think a lot of conventional agriculture has become toxic to the soil. They they till up the soil so aggressively and they spray chemicals on it and our soils are becoming depleted. And for that reason, I think it's really important for you to know your farmer and pick, uh, ideally, a healthy local organic farm where you know the processes they use to produce food and you know that they care deeply about the soil and want to help it. Next, we need to stop accepting the throwaway culture. We need to consider doing things like bringing silverware with us when we're going to eat at a place that gives out plastic silverware or bringing our own containers with us uh, for our take-home food and stuff like that. We, we can't just rely on systems where we get a plastic container and we just throw it away just so we can bring some food back to our house. That's, that's ridiculously wasteful, and, and it's sad that all of us continue to do that. When you get home from the grocery store, you just bring so much trash with you. We need to get back to where we're just bringing the food and using only reusable containers. If you do go into wildlands, and I encourage you to go into wildlands because they're beautiful and it's tremendously good for your health to do so, leave no trace. That needs to be the motto of humanity, basically, is leave no trace. If we do that, we solve most all of our problems with regard to planetary health. 
you know, instead of driving a four-wheel drive vehicle all over <laughs> all over the wildlands and destroying just tremendous amounts of of flora and fauna in in the process, maybe try walking. It's good for your health and and good for the environment too. You can stop supporting companies that aren't on board with saving the planet. If companies are doing things that are harmful to the planet, don't buy their products or use their services or supplies. We can plant trees in areas that will support them. Like we said, 40% of forests have been cut down, so we really need to plant back all that 40%. I think sometimes people take this a little too far, and when we find people planting trees in the desert or, or ecosystems where they're not supposed to be, but... In general, if you're planting trees in areas where they can be supported, that's going to be a good thing. It's going to help draw down carbon from the atmosphere. It's going to be a, a, a pillar for other wildlife to use and thrive off of. And it's going to create some nice shade for people to enjoy the space underneath. Planting native plants is also really good for the environment. Um, it helps support pollinators and other species and animals and birds, etc. All of us have gotten into the habit of planting a monocrop of grass in our yard. And grass is kind of a downer because it takes a lot of water resources to keep looking good. It, it just guzzles water and it doesn't support many other species. So while it's good for, you know, kicking a soccer ball around, it's really not good for wildlife or for the environment. And so maybe utilize that grass at the local park and at your house, plant native plants and enjoy the beautiful flowers and the rich diversity that that will bring. I've made, I, I've made all these mistakes. I worked really hard to get nice grass and now I'm like, man, I got to rip up. And every year I do take up some more of it and, re and replace it with plants, but... But it's tough. I know a lot of us have spent a lot of time doing that. Um, and then avoid har using chemicals that hurt uh, the environment and people. You know, maybe think twice about dumping chemicals all over your lawn every day that your kid plays on. Maybe think twice about what type of insecticides and, and pesticides you're going to use around your home and, and family. And, 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 of course, the, the chemicals and, and products you're going to put on your body and in your body. We can also just educate others uh, about the the dangers of destabilizing our planet. I think if, if the word gets out on this and, and people really understand the scope of the danger, I think we're all going to feel more and more compelled to act. I think going into math, science, and engineering is also really, really important. I've seen a ton of people, a ton of the smartest people in the last you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years going into business. And not to say we don't need business people, but I think a lot of our best brains are, are doing things like figuring out derivatives and finance to, to make more money using money instead of solving some of the world's biggest problems and, and creating cool things and building cool things. And so by going into math, science, and engineering, you can actually be the people that will solve these huge societal-level problems like how we can avoid destabilizing our planet, how we can become multi-planetary, how we can take all life with us into the solar system and terraform other planets. I mean, these problems are tremendously cool and awesome, and the future that we could build could be extraordinary, but we need very talented people to get there. And then, of course, do not put profits over the health and safety of our planet. We 
we just need to get away from this idea that, you know, we, we do business and then we do a little bit of environmental work on the side. I think we need to, to sort of follow a framework where everything is about preserving the natural world. And, and we do business in a way that, that puts that in the center. And if what we're doing does not support that idea and support the natural world, we don't do it because we depend on the natural world. It is what we need and what we have to have to be healthy. So that's kind of uh, just some important things that you can do. You know, simple things like eating healthy, like planting trees and native plants, like avoiding the use of, of dangerous chemicals, like not supporting companies that, that don't protect and help the natural world. I mean, these things will put big pressure on everyone else. And then if you really want to go big, go into math, science, or engineering and try and solve some of these huge problems. Just just be the coolest person in the room and, and, and come up with the brilliant solutions that are going to overt these crises. What's up, Full Scope listeners? If you are enjoying this content, if this content is bringing you value, please share it with your friends, loved ones, and everyone else. Post it online, on social media. Let your friends know. Have them subscribe. Put the word out there. That's all we really ask. And at the very least, give us a review and rate the podcast. Thanks so much. Let's get back to the show. All right, let's finish by talking about some of the direct human effects that global warming and climate change and all of these things we've been talking about have on humans directly, both now and in the future. I think one of the first, or one of the most important ideas to understand is that we are, you know, not just warming the planet because you'll see heat waves, you'll see cold waves. You'll see droughts, huge droughts, and you'll see huge floods too. And really what is going on is we're energizing the planet. We're making a more energized planet that tends to favor extremes. Long periods of drought followed by huge periods of torrential rainfall and flooding. Long periods of heat waves that are just scorching followed by periods of, of just coldness. And so people sometimes think, oh, well, the, the global warming is not real because, you know, the last winter was the coldest it's been in a long time or it rained just torrentially, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. And it's that's not really the way to think about it. It's not like a steady warming on a perfect graph. It's more like taking a planet that's really stable, like we talked about with the Holocene, and making it very turbulent, very changing. In a turbulent, changing world is a hard world to have a civilization in. And as that problem gets worse, it becomes harder and harder. An important idea to understand is that a world like this, one with extremes of temperature and, and precipitation, is going to disproportionately affect the poorest people in the world, the people who have food insecurity, that are under poor governance, that have poor public health. These are the people that are that are going to be affected first. They're going to have to migrate and look for safer areas. 
and it's going to potentially create a lot of chaos and problems starting with those those most vulnerable people along with that are the folks that are part of like coral atolls or like islands in the Pacific that have very low uh, rise or basically at sea level. These communities are already experiencing soil salination from flooding so their soils are becoming so salty and too salty even to sometimes support the normal plants that live there. And then the fresh water on some of these areas are getting contaminated with salt water. So because of the rising ocean levels these these people living on, on uh, some of these really low-lying islands are probably going to be some of the first to to have a huge issue and there, there's even people that are having to evacuate their islands or parts of their islands because this is happening already along with um, global warming and climate change comes a change in the disease footprints of many different human pathogens so things like malaria and dengue we're seeing them start to expand their range north into colder areas and causing those infections in, in, in places where they ha hadn't done so for, for long periods of time. And vector-borne illnesses uh, from things like mosquitoes and ticks are, are expanding and changing fairly rapidly at this point. Um, for instance, malaria, which is often carried by anopheline mosquitoes, um, there's thought to be about 300 million cases a year and about 600,000 deaths. And most of those deaths are occurring in children less than five years of age. Malaria is expanding due to the warming of our climate as well as precipita precipitation changes. These, these uh, downpours are creating more habitat for mosquitoes to thrive. And like, for instance, in 2014, malaria was found in birds in Alaska. Wow, that's pretty far north. And then in that same year in, uh, in uh, southern Italy, they had the first malaria cases that they'd had in 15 years. Uh, another um, arbovirus, dengue, um, which is thought to cause about 100 million infections a year. Remember, we talked about how it's the most common arbovirus uh, infection in the world. And about 2.5% of cases are thought to lead to death. It's spread by the Aedes mosquitoes, and um, its range is expanding too. A new strain was found in Portugal in 2012, and then in 2013 in, F in Florida, uh, dengue also occurred. So it's, it's starting to uh, reach up into the Western world, and that's going to be interesting. I remember when uh, Zika first got to Florida, there was quite a bit of panic. Ticks are also expanding um, in Europe and North America. Ixodes ticks that carry tick-borne encephalitis are moving to higher altitudes and expanding their range. And then uh, Ixodes ticks that carry Borrelia burgdorferi, which cause Lyme disease, are expanding uh, northward and westward as well. And we're seeing a lot more cases of Lyme disease in North America. So. A lot of these vectors are expanding, and you know, as humans become more, as we we just grow in population, and, and we're, more, we're more often recreating in outdoor areas, and more often invading natural areas, we're just going to see these vector diseases expand and become more common. As we talked about, torrential rainfalls are going to become more common, and with that, flooding. And flooding is already... Um, 
one of the most common extreme weather events, and it kills more people than any other natural disaster. Between 1980 and 2009, about 2.8 billion people were affected by floods, and there were 500,000 plus deaths. Uh, floods cause a lot of problems. They can contaminate our groundwater, destroy agricultural lands, destroy wild lands. They can lead to industrial pollutions. You can imagine if, a, if an environmental or if an uh, industrial factory gets flooded, it could grab all those chemicals in it and carry them off into the environment. We can see increases in the rates of diseases uh, like diarrheal diseases, leptospirosis, and cholera um, from flooding. It, it kind of spreads a lot of pathogens around in some cases and can lead to a lot of disease. And so flooding is really something that's on our radar. And of course, as sea levels rise, we're going to see flooding from the coast become a bigger issue. But with the with the increased uh, precipitation, uh, f you know, followed by, like we said, big droughts followed by lots of precipitation, we're, we're likely to see more flooding. The next thing I want to talk a little bit little bit about is nutrition. Um, People's nutrition will likely suffer as a result of global warming, and this will, of course, disproportionately affect the poorest people in developing countries. It's likely, and, and I've heard a lot of sources say that that the most uh, the most high yield croplands are probably going to shift north uh, to places like Canada and Russia. But overall, we're going to probably lose some of our ability to produce agriculture. And if temperatures really started to rise, like let's say if they went up 2 to 6 degrees Celsius, a lot of our staple crops really wouldn't survive and thrive at that temperature. So that would be a big problem. We're already seeing um, problems growing things and, and big droughts knocking out crops and, and warmer temperatures causing problems. So it sounds theoretical and scary, but it's actually kind of happening right now, which of course is even more scary. Um, the next thing, another thing that, that will probably increase uh, with uh, planetary destabilization would be violence and conflict. And this would, of course, happen first and mostly in developing countries where resources were scarce, but would probably jump to more developed countries as, as uh, resource scarcity increased. The final thing I want to talk about in today's podcast is mental health. And... As I've stated in some other episodes, just thinking about all the bad things we're doing to our planet, thinking about all the other species that we're killing and causing to become extinct, really makes us sad. And a lot of my patients come into clinic with me and they say, you know, I'm just really sad about what we're doing to the natural world. And I just look at them and say, me too. Like, it's, it's really saddening and it's anxiety provoking. And so right now, normal people just thinking about this are, are, are basically having their mental health affected because our species are the ones doing this. We are the ones at fault. And then, of course, beyond that, if, if some of these bad issues that we've been talking about, like, like uh, problems with nutrition, violence and conflict, increased flooding and natural disasters occur, that's going to lead to a tremendous amount of trauma and injury and loss and increase things like post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, and all kinds of other mental health issues. And so the mental health cannot be understated. As a species, we're already feeling pretty down about what we're doing, but, but the trauma that we could inflict on ourselves as a species could be tremendous. And um, 
it's really scary, guys. I, I've got to be honest, this episode, or these three episodes, were pretty hard for me to make because it really makes me sad. And in, particularly, in particular, the loss of biodiversity. Because like I said, the, these species are really the treasure, the treasure of our planet. And a lot of the a lot of the uh, non-biological resources we can find elsewhere, but the the life resources are are probably unique to this world. And when they're lost, they're they're gone. And so I would love to see us shoot, gather them all up into an arc and take them all around the solar system and terraform planets and and, and asteroids and other celestial bodies and make them look like Earth and expand our species all over the solar system and make this our little spot. But if we destroy most of the species before that can happen, that future will not become a reality and there will be no going back. And with all of these things, with our current technologies, it's going to be hard to go back on them. Perhaps future humans could easily suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Perhaps they could easily produce enough food and meat so that all of us could have as much as we want and there wouldn't be an issue. But right now, in the real world, we can't do that and it's important for us to prevent problems before we cause them in order to uh, prevent a global environmental and ecological catastrophe. Oh. Thank you so much for listening to the Full Scope Podcast and investing in your health. I'm Dr. Bill Randenberg. If you're enjoying the content, please rate, review, and share this content with all of your friends online and all your social media platforms. Please understand that this podcast is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure your specific medical condition. This podcast does not create any type of doctor-patient relationship between myself, Dr. Brandenburg, and you, the listener. If you do need help with your life, with your health, with anything regarding your longevity or performance, please check out wondermedicine.com. Our longevity and performance program is the best in the world and is ready to help you right now today become the best possible individual you can be. Thanks. Bye-bye. Pew.